Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to another episode of Ask Katie Anything. I am your host, licensed marriage and family therapist, Katie Morton. I am so glad that you're here. Now, in today's episode, we're going to talk about being obsessed with our mental illness and diagnosis and why we can find ourselves spending so much time researching them. I will also explain sleep's role in our mental health and what to do if we aren't sleeping well. Then we'll dig into exercise and how it can be used as a form of self-injury. I know it can happen and what we can do about it. We will then discuss dating someone with BPD or borderline personality disorder and how we can be more supportive. Also ways that we can build safety for ourselves and what we have to do in order to deserve therapy. Without further ado, let's jump into those questions. Now, question number one says, I have been constantly thinking about my depression and eating disorder. I am always looking up articles about it, watching YouTube videos about it, and taking online self-assessments. Why could I be obsessing so much? Sometimes I feel like I'm making my mental illness up, all up in my head. That's key. Let's remember that. By taking these self-assessments, I'm convincing myself that I do have a problem. I feel so guilty for asking for help and being in therapy. I recently was assessed by an eating disorder clinic, and they think that we they are leaning towards IOP as a suggestion for me. I just don't feel like I'm at that point. I don't feel quote unquote, sick enough or worthy enough for treatment. Could this be why I'm obsessing over my mental health and diagnosis? Yes. Now we have a comment on the end of this, but let's just dive right in. Yes, that's why. When we obsess about something, take a bunch of assessments, do all this like researching, reading, reading, reading. What I always suspect we're doing is trying to prove to ourselves that yes, we are in fact sick. Like you said, you think you're not sick enough and eating disorders have this although mental illnesses as a whole have this, but eating disorders in particular have this pesky symptom, I guess is what I want to call it, where we always think that we're not bad enough. Eating disorders always push us to be quote unquote worse or sicker. And I'm here to tell you, unfortunately, that there's no amount of sickness that we can feel that will ever be enough for an eating disorder. That's how they work. They focus us on the eating disorder behavior so that we don't have to think about anything else. And in order to do that, they have to prove to us somehow through racing thoughts and false beliefs that it's just not enough, not enough, not enough, not enough. And so we have to keep going, doing more and more. So we have to keep focusing, focusing, focusing more and more and more on that eating disorder stuff so that, again, we can't think about the other things that are truly upsetting us. And that's what's happening here. And because we don't feel sick enough and now we're getting assessed and they think we need IOP, we're kind of going into a tailspin and we're obsessing about it so much because we're like, wait, I didn't think I was sick enough or wait, I don't think I really have a problem. It's just your eating disorder acting up as a result of the fact that you are getting treatment. And there's an interesting thing too, that when we finally, I have an old, like old video, probably like 10 years old or more, where I talk about the fact that eating disorders get worse before they get better and why I believe that to be true. And there's a a piece in there really about the fact that it's like threatened by the potential removal of it, that it like starts lashing out even more intense because we have to remember our eating disorders are coping skills for bigger things going on, right? 
If I'm focusing on food 99.9% of the time, that leaves no brain space for thoughts of my past trauma or neglect or the bullying or anything that I sustained, or it doesn't give any space for that. So, oh, it's like a, a relief. It gives me something else to do. And so when we think about getting rid of it, our nervous, we're like, oh my God, what am I going to do? And we can feel really overwhelmed and we can feel worse at first, but that doesn't mean that it's not important and that we don't deserve care. It really just means that our eating disorder is like ramping up because it feels a little threatened, which is actually a good thing. But I believe that obsession comes from there. It also could come from a space of like, uh, maybe in our life through our parents or through our upbringing, we believe that we're not worthy, that things, you know, that we don't deserve to get help because we're not good enough. I think we could have some false beliefs around that. And that could be born out of abuse. That could be born out of um, any kind of emotional neglect or bullying that we sustained growing up, anything like that. We, for some reason, think that taking up space and uh, getting help and uh, being is just too much or that we're not good enough to take anybody's attention or time. And so that could be also kind of triggering this sensation to like assess and assess and assess and read and read and read to ensure that like us getting therapy and us actually getting treatment isn't taking from anybody else that we do in fact need it. And because that false belief of I'm not good enough, I don't, I'm not worthy is really strong. My my belief would be, or my hypothesis would be that even as you do this research and these assessments, it's never enough. And we still don't think that we are deserving. Does that make sense? I hope so. There's a comment on this says, yes, I do the same things. I feel like I do this to hold on to my eating disorder. I'm in a better place with recovery than I've been in a long time, but I feel like I can't quite let go of the idea of having my eating disorder. It feels like if I fully move on the huge impact my eating disorder had on my life and everything I lost to it is almost being forgotten. For a long time, my eating disorder was my whole life. And even though I have other things to define me now, admitting that I'm better feels like I'm losing part of myself. Why does this happen? Because it's kind of two-part, two-prong. Because, like I said before, we focus all of our attention and energy onto this thing, the eating disorder, we can lose sight of who we are. Now, the eating disorder doesn't define us at all, but we can lose sight of that and forget like who we were before. And so it can take us some time to kind of figure out who we are again. I can't tell you how many of my eating disorder clients over the years we've spent like trying to figure out what foods they like and don't like, what things they like to do and not do, what kind of clothes they want to wear, where do they want to live, are, are, do who do they like to date, like all sorts of things because we've never given ourselves an opportunity to explore who we are because we're spending 99.9% .9 of our time focused on this eating disorder. And so it takes some time when you're away from that to be like, oh, hmm, I have all this time and energy and focus left. Like, what do I, what do I want to study in school? What do I want to do for a career? All these questions that other people who didn't don't have a mental illness or don't have an eating disorder had time to slowly develop. We have to do that development now. And it just, it takes time. And I think there is a, a bizarre kind of grieving process that comes along with the quote unquote loss of our eating disorder. Again, because it was a comfort, it was a coping skill for so long. So to be without it can feel kind of scary at first. It can feel like we're losing a part of ourselves when we're not, but it can feel like that. And I want to just acknowledge and you know validate that that is a real feeling and it is true, but that's where it comes from because we spent so much of our life focusing on it. We left no room for development of actual traits, right? Like we don't know maybe what we like and don't like in people and places and things, you know, and so we have to take our time to try to sort that and give yourself an opportunity to grieve it. 
while slowly learning about yourself. Because trust me when I tell you that that's a way more interesting version of yourself than the one with your eating disorder. I spent hours upon hours, months upon months, weeks, you know, so much time with people with eating disorders. And I can tell you one thing, none of them can tap into any emotions about life. None of them are able to express real discontent, upset, excitement, anything like that. None of them are able to engage in real relationships where they feel seen and heard and the other person are able to offer that to them as well. And so many things. So just know that even though it feels like you're losing a part of yourself, the part that you're actually losing was holding you back. Yes, it served a purpose. Thank you, eating disorder. It was there when we needed it and it was a great coping skill, but it is getting in the way. You know, some coping skills are like that. Almost all of the unhealthy ones start off as, oh, it helps me numb out. I'm coping. I feel better. I can move on with my life and we keep going. And then it starts to not be as effective. It starts to cause other issues like uh, medical issues if it's an eating disorder or it could be medical issues because we're having addiction it could get it could make us lose our jobs it can cost us a lot of money there can be all these kinds of side effects come along and it becomes instead of this coping skill that's helping us move through it becomes like a weight tied onto our feet and we're like dragging it and it's just holding us back and that's the piece we have to remember that we got rid of it for a reason that we worked on recovery for a reason I think that we often forget how bad it was. And so I encourage you, I know this sounds really weird. I encourage you to remember, ask your therapist about it. You know, go back to old journals just to recall how unhealthy that thought process was and how bad you felt. We often forget about the bad and and kind of like romanticize our eating disorders, forgetting the reason that we wanted to get rid of them in the first place. So maybe that will help a little bit, but hang in there. Grieving it and feeling shitty about it is completely normal. Okay. Moving on to question number two says, hi, Katie, how do you cope with life when you don't get adequate sleep? I experienced bad sleep deprivation from changing shifts originally from overnights to day shift, which made it hard to function. I was getting four or less hours a night. That's really bad, which I am now just recovering from partly with medication, getting better, but broken sleep. Is there a way to cope with lack of sleep and is healing possible? Okay. Now, there's a question, a comment on this, but I want to explain really quickly the purpose of sleep and why it is so vitally important. Now, sleep is the time when our brain cleans itself. It's a cleaning crew comes in and gets rid of like old dead dendrites, meaning, you know, some of the information that maybe we don't use anymore. Like, uh, you know, like I've always joked, like that middle school Spanish, although I'm doing my Duolingo right now and I'm getting better. But you know, things that we're not actively retrieving or utilizing or parts of our brain that just, you know, need a little cleansing because they're uh, regenerating, right? All that happens at night. Not to mention it's when we form long-term memory. That's why pulling all-nighters doesn't work. It's not very effective for a long-term gain of information, meaning we might be able to memorize it for a short period enough to take the test, but then if a test builds upon that other test, we won't be able to recall most of the information that we studied and quote unquote learned from that first test because we didn't actually learn it. Our brain didn't get an opportunity to sleep and file it away, which is why we should study little by little and get full nights of sleep. That's the most effective way to learn something. So there's a lot of importance when it comes to sleep, not to mention there's a ton. If you really want to dig into sleep, uh, Dr. Walker, I'm forgetting his, Matthew Walker, is a sleep specialist. He's has a, 
I think he has a TED Talk, but he was on Joe Rogan's podcast. He has a masterclass he's offered. He's written a book. He researches sleep. That's like all he does. And he gave a talk at this Zeitgeist event that we went to. Google puts on an event every year. Um, and we went to it in 2019. And it's sleep affects us in a lot of ways from like sex drive and reproductive abilities to, um, you know, um, muscle mass and gain and bone strength, everything. Essentially, we need sleep to help our body function. So with that being said, what do we do when we don't get adequate sleep? We're going to have to try to get into some kind of rhythm. Because if we don't get adequate sleep for a long period of time, the the health effects are vast. Everything from like high blood pressure to uh, heart issues to memory issues to I can't even tell you the full list a ton of issues not getting good sleep is very very bad for us so if we're get in order to function if we're doing shift work my encouragement to you is to well it's really like three pronged first is if you can get a different job that doesn't force you to do shift work which I know is easier said than done trust me I used to work like until like midnight at the Eden sort of clinic sometimes 11 would be like yay I got off early kind of affects your sleep wake cycle if you work nights or whatever just try to make sure that it's the same schedule so so if you can change jobs perfect if not see if you can get your schedule into a rhythm so that even if you are working a shift that runs into the middle of the night that it's consistent and then we need to get blackout blinds we need to make it feel like nighttime so we can get our body on that rhythm of a different shift it's not ideal but i know we don't all have the luxury of trying to get another job right especially if we're like nurses um even healthcare workers in general but cleaning staff, you know, truck drivers, all the people that make our world work. We, some of us do shift work. So those are the other two. Now, the third and the one that I want to dive into the most, and this is what I do with most of my patients, is working on sleep hygiene. So that means that if we get off work at a weird time, we need to have a ritual and a routine leading up to bed, and it's non-negotiable. And that routine needs to in- include a few of things, a few of these things. Number one, means we need to um, like do things in a specific order, like brush our teeth, wash our face, shower, whatever it is we need to do. Do it in the same order every night. And we need to not have any, I know that people are going to hate this, but I just have to be honest with you. We cannot be on our phones or watch television for a minimum of 30 minutes before bed. Ideally, I believe they say like two or three hours. I know that's not realistic for me, Maybe that's realistic for you, but at least give yourself 30 minutes. Do not, I know, I'm not any better at this, but do not be in your bed. Scroll, no, stop that because that light keeps uh, the melatonin from being produced in your brain. Also stop taking melatonin. It's not very, it's not good for you and it doesn't really improve uh, our sleep. Tons of research has come out that it's actually not helpful and can cause weird dreams and all sorts of other things. Magnesium is one. L-theanine is another that are, have proven to be helpful. Uh, Dr. Walker talks about this too. Um, but get into a rhythm of having, you can have like the a sleepy time tea. It's But it's not tea. It's called, um, it's magnesium like powder and you put it in hot water and you drink it. It's very good. There's like a strawberry lemonade. I highly recommend. I got it on Amazon. Um, but anyways, have this routine. We need no screen time. I know you hate me. Also, showers or baths before bed are really good. You don't have to get your hair wet if that bothers you, um, but we find it cools down your system. It, we actually sleep best. I want to say Dr. Walker said it's like 67 degrees. I know it's very cold, but just know that a little cooler is actually better for sleep. Okay. And 
third, and people are going to hate this just as much, no animals on your bed. We need to keep them out. They disturb our sleep. I know I love my dog Adu just as much as any of you. And I know kitty cats love to pounce and they love to sleep. And they're also like awake during the night, which can be very disruptive. We need to keep animals out of the bed. No one should be in the bed except for you and your partner. And then I guess the fourth thing I would mention is nothing else should happen in your bed. You should not work. You should not be on your phone answering questions. You know, you shouldn't be doing anything in your bed except for sex and sleep. That's it. Because our body has this like kind of memory associated or, uh, I don't know if I want to call it memory, but it, it like associates different parts of your home with different activities. I think that's one of the biggest issues I have with like work from home because people do shit in bed now because they're like, well, my roommate or my, you know, whoever I live with is like out in the living room and I have this call. So I don't have a desk in my room because I don't have room for it. So, you know, da, da, da. we need to not do work in our bed, only sex and sleep. Okay. And let's just get ourselves into a routine so that we can feel better because sleep is incredibly important. And if you have to take medication to assist with that, there's no shame in that. I know that medication induced sleep is not as high of quality as if it were natural, but we'll get you to a point where it can be more natural once we're in a, a rhythm. Okay. Now, another comment said, yes, I currently work overnights and I feel like my anxiety is so much worse on the nights that I'm not working. I just stay up all night overthinking and I feel like it's even harder during the day because I miss out on so much from sleeping all day and just being too tired to function. I don't want to leave my job because I do like it and day shift won't be an option for a few more years. But how do I draw the line between anxiety and depression and just being uh, and just being from working a night shift? Thanks for all that you do. I hope this question relates to the one above. Yes. Now, um, the overthinking... My a couple thoughts. First of all, if you feel your anxiety ramping up, I want you to get out of bed and I want you to stomp and shake your body around until you kind of feel a little out of breath, maybe 15, 20 seconds, and then get back in bed. That can sometimes alleviate some of that queued up energy, but it's also because of your rhythm. If you're not, essentially, you're awake at night and you sleep during the day and that's the schedule for your job. And so there's no shame in the nights that you're off sleeping during the day, being up at night that's when you do your things. I know it's not conducive to our world. And if you have stuff to do, I understand. But maybe that means that we get up at like, you know, three and run all our errands before things close at five. I know that's, again, not ideal. But this this shift work is messing with your schedule. And so we're gonna have to find ways to work with, not against it. And I think that you're probably staying up all night overthinking because your body is used to being awake. It's almost like jet lag in a weird way. You know, Sean and I were in Italy a couple of weeks ago and like, I was surprised I didn't get jet lag, but I think it's because of a couple of things. Like I stayed up until 930 and then went to bed and slept a full night. And, you know, I was happy. It was more easy for me to get into the rhythm. Also, I was exhausted. Um, but anyways, it, finding a, a rhythm for you and not forcing yourself out of it on the weekends, because then it's like on the weekends, you're jet lag. And so it's really hard to sleep. And even if you fall asleep, you might wake up at like three in the morning, like ready to go. And so we might just keep that schedule. Okay. I know it's shitty. But the line between your anxiety and depression and from just from working a night shift, I don't think there's really a, a border or a line. I think it's when you work the night shift and you're and it comes the nighttime and you're you're off, right? You're not working. Your anxiety is probably there because it's it feels stressful and frustrating that we can't sleep when everybody else is sleeping and we feel like we're missing out on things and then we ruminate and blah, blah, blah. we have all that queued up energy because we're used, used to being awake at that time. So do your body shakes. I encourage you to try to keep a, a somewhat similar schedule if you're on or off shift. I know it's not ideal, but you can do it. I have friends that are like bartenders and they get off at like two or three in the morning and they would always 
just plan for things on their days off starting at like 2 p.m. And there's nothing wrong with that. Just make sure you're, you, and oh, and the most important thing before we move on is that the, we need to get at least seven and a half hours of sleep every night. Everybody's different. I require nine. I know, crazy. But some people require seven and a half. Some people require eight. Some people require 10. Get a feel for what you require and make sure you're setting inside enough time for that. Okay? Let's move on to question number three. This question says, hey, Katie, what are your thoughts on exercise as a form of self-injury? Interesting. I've had so many benefits. It has so many benefits for me. And I know a lot of folks struggling with anxiety, depression, and OCD have used it as a quote-unquote healthy coping skill. When would it become a form of self-injury rather than self-care? For context, I'm dealing with recovering from an eating disorder as well as OCD. Thank you. And P.S. I just finished Traumatized and I loved it. Oh, that makes me feel so good. Yay. Okay. Exercise can be wonderful. I even personally have had like a mixed relationship with exercise. Growing up, I would use it to kind of numb out and it wasn't healthy. And my therapist was like, we got to stop this. So here are my thoughts. Now, exercise as a whole is important and we should be getting at least 30 minutes of cardiovascular exercise. I want to say they, it's like three to four days a week. I forget what the Heart Association tells us, but we need to be walking, moving. Exercise, by the way, does not mean organized exercise. It doesn't mean cramming in some kind of like, I don't know, hit workout or cart like running or uh, lifting weights or doing a class. It doesn't have to be that way. It can be, but it does not have to be. Walking your dog for 45 minutes or 30 minutes is sufficient. Being out and about, walking to dinner and back, um, being in your house doing stretches or a couple of lunges, like there's tons of ways for us to exercise in a way that is good for us and meets what our body needs, period. When exercise becomes too much, there's a couple of things that I would, that I'll throw out there that I know personally was why my exercise was unhealthy when I was a teenager. And also I'll throw out some of the things I know from eating disorder land and what I worked in for many, many, many years. So number one, if we cannot function, meaning emotionally, all we can think about is how we're going to fit in that exercise. And we obsess over it so much so that we're so maxed out. We will miss out on events. We prioritize exercise over everything else in our life. That's a problem. That means that if my friends want me to go out, I will run myself like very late because I have to get that exercise in. And it has to be for a certain amount of time and a certain number of things. We're very regimented and we cannot, that's kind of part of that OCD piece that I would assume you're experiencing that is very unhealthy. Exercise should not take from your life. It should give. So that's one. Second thing that I always tell my patients, especially eating disorder based that I want them to look out for is when we exercise, even when we don't feel good. So if you're sick, if you have a pulled muscle, if you're super tired, if your muscles are sore and you choose to not listen to your body and instead force it to exercise, that is a red flag. That means that we're using exercise as a form of self-injury as an unhealthy coping skill. We've just flipped a healthy coping skill into an unhealthy one. And then another thing that I always look out for is if we feel like exercise allows us to quote unquote earn things. Like, oh, I exercise, therefore I can eat or I can have a dessert or then I can do something I love. Meaning exercise is like this gatekeeper that we have to follow through and do the thing before we can do anything else. Again, it's taking from us, it's not giving, okay? Those are the things that I look out for. And then if we use exercise as a way, when it's like straight up for self-injury, this direct correlation, if we use exercise as a form of punishment ever, like, oh, I had a patient one time 
who, if she would eat more than she thought she should, quote unquote should, because she had eating disorder. So who knows what that was? It changed all the time. If she ate th- more than she thought she should have, then she had to like run it off. And there were like these random calculations and equations and she would like punish herself for quote unquote overeating by exercising. That is not healthy. And that means that your exercise has again turned from a healthy coping skill into an unhealthy one. And so that's what we have to look out for. Those are the things. Exercise again should be something that we do because it helps us feel better. Like that's why I love yoga so much. I feel like it like saved my life when I was 20, was it 22 when I first started practicing? And it's so slow. You have to be in your body. It forces me out of the rush, rush, go, go, because you're holding poses for like 30 seconds, sometimes a minute. It's like, it would be infuriating to someone who needed to move quick and thought they had to like race through, right? But my back feels better. And as I get older, it's really important. And it's a way that I take care of myself. So it's okay to prioritize exercise as a way to take care of yourself. But when it becomes something that you cannot be flexible with, and that it prevents you from doing other things, it's something to be looked at. Okay. I hope that answers your question. Moving on to question number four, it says, hey, Katie, I started dating someone with BPD and I was wondering if you had any tips on where to start learning about how to be supportive of them, especially when it comes to splitting behavior. I don't just want to trust Dr. Google. Thank you, of course. And it's best to not trust Dr. Google. Dr. Google gives us a good place to start, but it can be also a little limiting, right? Now, for anybody who doesn't know, splitting behavior is something incredibly common with BPD. Although I, I think it can be also part of narcissistic personality disorder and other stuff. And people can have that symptom and not have BPD, but it is primarily associated with BPD. Now, splitting behavior happens when we think of people as all good or all bad. And that means that if someone that we like think is amazing and we're in relationship with them, and then they do something slight that makes us think they might leave us or they're upset with us, it triggers us emotionally in some way. Because we have to remember, people with BPD feel like emotional burn victims. They feel everything intensely. Their emotional like volatility or reactivity is very strong. So this the slightest can feel so painful. Go they go from loving us to hating us, and they can like lash out, and that's what really usually is incredibly detrimental to their relationships. And so that kind of behavior can be really hard. And so when we're dating someone with BPD, the best thing we can do it's actually two prong. Number one, take care of yourself and get into therapy because this could trigger you as well. You're human. No one likes to be, you know, poked at, like someone getting angry really quickly. The reactivity or the impulsivity that can come along with BPD, you know, we need to be able to handle ourselves and take care of ourselves so we can weather that storm, okay? So that's the first part. My second tip, okay, so along with taking care of yourself, we all, and getting your own therapy, we also need to learn boundaries. People with BPD hate and love them. Trust me, I've worked with patients with BPD for years. And the reason that they hate them is because at first it feels very abandony and they can get very uncomfortable. However, the reason that they love them is because it prevents that splitting behavior. Especially if that's like the, the crux for you. It sounds like that's probably what you're encountering the most. We need to make time for boundaries. And that means that you need to take a minute and you need to consider what you're okay with and not okay with. If they start talking like, lashing out and talking to you, I give you permission to say, I told you that if you started talking to me this way, I'm just going to walk away. We'll talk about this later. And you remove yourself or whatever, right? You need to communicate them the boundaries. You need to communicate that to your partner with BPD. 
and then you need to like follow through with them consistently. Boundaries cannot be with someone with BPD. Boundaries cannot be somewhat enforced and then not enforced and somewhat enforced and not enforced because that will trigger that splitting behavior and that fear of abandonment so much worse. It'll make it so much worse for you. So make sure you're more consistent. Those boundaries will be your friend. They'll be the person with BPD's friend and your friend because it will stop this kind of volatility and reactivity and it will prevent any what I would call kind of BPD triggered arguments that really aren't necessary. They feel necessary to the person with BPD and they, because they feel very hurt, but they actually aren't necessary because it's coming out of that feeling like an emotional burn victim, right? Those are my two key tips. Now, you can also ask them. I think it's really key to when we're in relationships in general to have people tell us how we can best support them, see what they, you know, want us to do. You can even tell them like, hey, I asked, you know, a therapist on the internet about this and she said to do these things and that's why I'm going to do this. You can use me as like a scapegoat for that. So you can be like, yeah, they said it. And so this is what I'm going to do. How do you feel about that? It's okay to ask them, let them talk to you. But other than that, we can only clean our side of the road. Okay. Remember this. We can't make someone feel better. We can't make someone know that it's going to be okay. We can't change the their BPD or change their reactivity. They have to want to work on themselves. And I really encourage all of us in general that if you have someone that you're dating who is struggling with a mental illness, if they're not getting help for it and it's affecting, it's affecting your relationship, there's nothing wrong with leaving that relationship. And I don't mean that in a hurtful way. This isn't like me being like stigmatizing or rough with people, but we're all responsible for ourselves. And if I'm going to engage someone else in a relationship, I need to be taking care of myself, right? It doesn't mean that if we have a mental illness, we can't be in a relationship. That's not true at all. That's bullshit. But if I'm like abusing them and being reactive and impulsive, and I'm not even working at all to be better. Like I've had so many friends who've been in therapy to try to work on their marriage and their partner won't go into therapy with them. And I'm like, oh, it won't work if you both aren't working on yourselves. I know that. I've seen it, you guys. And I know it's a tough truth, but it's an important truth because each of us has to clean our side of the road and the best relationships work when both sides are clean. Now, relationships aren't perfect. No one's is, but if they aren't taking care of themselves, there's no amount of work that you can do to make them feel better. Remember, we can't make anybody do anything or feel any kind of way. We can only do that for ourselves. Okay. That's my advice. I hope that you're, uh, the person you're dating is getting support and hopefully some of the tips I offered, you know, stop that reactivity. Okay. Let's move on to question number five. This is, Hey Katie, how can I build safety for myself? I've been doing better in all areas, but I never feel safe in my body. Is this normal for someone with extensive, with an extensive trauma history that's already worked through a lot? And how can I overcome this? Yes, that's 100% normal. Not wanting to be in our bodies or not feeling safe in our bodies, especially when we have trauma in our past, is incredibly common because of the fact that things happened to us and we didn't feel safe and we didn't know what to do. And those body memories and the flashbacks and the actual memories can be very, very uncomfortable. Now, I would encourage you, okay, two things. Number one, I would encourage you to check out the book, Body Keeps the Score, if you haven't already. It's it's a lot, take your time with it, but it's incredibly beneficial, especially when we're talking about this kind of stuff. Second is look into somatic experiencing. It's a style of therapy. If anybody in your area does therapy that includes like somatic work or they do trauma-informed yoga, they actually offer trauma-informed yoga through Hope for Recovery. That's Hope, the number four, recovery. I want to say it's .org. 
but you'll find them. It's free. And they do a thing every year to raise money at the end of October. They or no, at the end of September, I think. Um, they did it. And so that's a way for you to donate, but everything else is free. That can be really helpful because what we're going to try to do is be able to move that trauma out of your system so that you can not feel it swirling and twirling and feel so unsafe in your body. That can be another great avenue for healing because talking it through and processing through a lot of it can be beneficial, but there's like that key piece of what I would call like body work, which I know sounds kind of icky and weird, but it helps us move the trauma out of our nervous system and out of our body so it doesn't keep swirling around. So that's like two kind of ways that we can go about this. Now, the third and final kind of tip I have for you is when it comes to safety, sometimes also just know that if the word safe feels unsafe, it's okay to seek a neutral stance too. So when I say safety, know that you can enter it, use it interchangeably with neutral. Try to find some things that are neutral or soothing or safe for your system. These are usually repetitive things like walking, vacuuming, folding clothes, um, coloring, even journaling, things that just you're doing this repetitive action. If you have to dust in your house, I know it's a lot of cleaning, but cleaning tends to be very repetitive. So uh, there, if you can do something that's kind of like, I don't have to think a lot about it. And it's like a repetitive action I do over and over and over. Our nervous system likes that and it tends to calm down. And so that might be some of the ways that you can try to soothe your system, bring it into neutral and feel okay. Now, another kind of tip, because I I should do a workshop on somatic experiencing. I've done a lot of research. I just haven't put it together. But another thing that uh, Dr. Peter Levine, the one who started somatic, is I think it's Dr. Peter Levine who did somatic experiencing. Anyway, he talks about the start of getting into your body and feeling okay, along with having those actions you can do to bring you back into safety or neutrality is in the shower, buying a shower wand head and running the water up and down your hands and being like, I'm feeling the water on my hands. I'm feeling the water on my forearms and starting there and then doing your feet or whatever the least triggering parts of your body are starting there to start to essentially trigger and maybe trigger is the wrong word, but like initiate us going into our bodies and feeling sensations again and not having an adverse reaction to it. Now, if in the shower is too much and you're like, oh, that just seems triggering in and of itself, it could be putting lotion on. It could just be massaging. It could be anything like that. But let's bring our awareness to different parts of our body. Could run an ice cube up and down. Bringing ourselves into our bodies can be scary and overwhelming. So it's good to start little by little, then using some things to calm our system down and then continuing. But be patient with yourself. It's very normal. It's really hard. It's, I feel like, at least in my experience, the bodily sensations are often like the last things to go. So know that you're making progress and it is getting better. Stick with it. And I'm proud of you. You've already worked through a lot. So yay. And this will get better. And again, Body Keeps the Score is great. Any somatic experiencing workbooks and stuff. I think I have stuff in my Amazon shop. You can go to amazon.com forward slash shop forward slash Katie Morton to find it all. Um, But that could be a great resource. Okay. Final question. Question number six is, hey, Katie, I hope you're having a great weekend. Thank you. I was. I wanted to ask you if I even deserve to be able to go to therapy if I've never experienced any trauma. I've been diagnosed with anxiety and depression, but my therapist says it's genetic. Okay. If that's true, then how is talk therapy going to help me otherwise, other than giving me some coping techniques? I feel like I need someone to talk to, but whenever I go into therapy, I feel like I'm taking up the spot of someone who needs it much more than I do. 
My therapist has told me that medication might help, but my parents don't allow that. Oh, I'm sorry. Because of this, I feel like my therapist is giving up on me. Should I just stop going to therapy? Thank you for all that you do. Okay, a couple things I need to clarify for you here. Everyone deserves to go to therapy and has a right to take up that space and take that hour. You're not taking it from someone else. You're utilizing a resource to get the support that you need. We don't have to experience trauma to be deserving of care. I go to therapy. I don't have a traumatic past. I was never abused as a kid. Thank God I still deserve therapy and so do you. Anxiety and depression can be debilitating. And there's a reason your therapist is asking about medication. I would encourage you to see if she'd be comfortable or if you'd be comfortable bringing your parents into sessions so that she can talk to them about it because medication is really like getting your head above water. My hypothesis is that your therapist is offering like tools and techniques, but you're not able to utilize them because your anxiety and depression are too intense. And so she's like, well, maybe medication would help you feel a little better so that you can then do those things. And she could help talk to your parents about that. So maybe that's something we can look into and think about. But let her know that you feel like she's giving up on you because your parents aren't allowing for that. Talk to her about that. It's okay. You have every right to be in therapy. You have every right. You're not taking it from anybody else. And genetics play just as important of a role, right? You're like, I'm genetically predisposed to these things. That doesn't make it any less than someone who isn't, I guess. Almost everybody who has a mental illness has some genetic predisposition for the thing they're struggling with. Not, all, I mean, I guess PTSD is different, right? It could be something that happened to us and it caused us to be traumatized and we develop PTSD. But mental illnesses almost always have a genetic component that doesn't make it any less valid or important and doesn't make you any less deserving of care. You deserve treatment. You're not taking it from anybody else. You're utilizing a resource to better yourself. And I'm proud of you. So see if your if your parents could come into session. I know it's uncomfortable. I know you hate it, but sometimes a therapist can be more convincing. If we think medication could be helpful, I want you to have that opportunity. And I would not stop going to therapy, but express to your therapist some of your concerns and what's going on. And let's move from there, okay? It'll get better. Hang in there. I'm proud of you for reaching out for help and getting it. Let's just make sure we keep that going, okay? Thank you all so much for listening and watching. Thank you for sending in your questions. Have a wonderful rest of your week. Do your homework and I'll see you next time. Bye.